Hi folks, this is Shaq Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is July 29th, 2014, and this is episode 1396 of the Survival Podcast. Can you imagine that? We're about a top 1400 episodes of this show. Uh, we'll actually do that, I guess, on Friday, Friday, Friday. Yeah, but we'll save the big Friday, Friday, Friday for then. That's kind of cool. Friday the 1400th. Anyway, uh, I've got a show for you today. This, I think it's going to be something that a lot of you guys are going to like. I've had a lot of requests for this show, and I talk so much about it in pieces and parts, I've kind of put it off. And I also don't consider myself anywhere near an expert on the subject, though I do have you know, uh, quite a bit of experience with it. And that is just keeping chickens and all the different ways you can keep chickens and the different chickens you can keep and what they'll do for you and what they won't do for you. And frankly, if you don't control them, what they'll do to you. Uh, I think a lot of people are interested in getting a flock of chickens and starting out with chickens and have some apprehension. Hopefully by the end of today, I'll be able to say, if you want to do it, just do it. And uh, barring any problems with John Law and the Department of Making You Sad from Government, you'll just do it. Anyway, before that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Fortress Defense Consultants, the linchpin and the triangle of gun operator efficiency. You got the weapon, you got the ammo. You can just buy those off the shelf. And, you know, as long as you uh, maintain them and, and do what you're supposed to do with them, they'll do their job. But in the, the linchpin, the top of the triangle, the operator, that's you. So I know you go out to the range, you draw your weapon, you fire, you hit the target every time. You're Johnny Badass. You're as good as those guys on that video game Halo. Yeah, are you going to be that good when somebody's shooting at you? Or when somebody's shooting at somebody else? Or when you've cut your leg or you've been shot already and you're trying to save your own life and your right hand's blown off? Think stuff like that can't happen? In mass shootings, it does, and it has. And I just want to put you in touch with the reality there of why you carry a weapon in the first place. Fortress Defense will train you to train yourself so that if you end up in that situation, you have the highest likelihood of survival. Notice I didn't say guaranteed that you would survive. There's no guarantees of survival in the world of, the war, the world of, of, of violence. But your training is the thing that gives you the edge. If you want real-world training, go out to Fortress Defense Consultants and train with Frank Sharp Jr., and his cadre of expert instructors. And uh, ladies, those of you who have uh, made the smart decision to be able to defend yourself, your family, and your loved ones, I'll tell you what, every woman I've talked to that's gone to Fortress Defense says it's the best training they've ever had. They love Frank and his teachers. Check them out today, fortressdefense.com. Next up today, backyard food production. As big as I am on defending yourself, I'll tell you this, I have to eat about three times a day to like stay alive. And uh, I've been shot at once in my life, once in my life overseas, and it wasn't really a conflict thing. It was a pissed-off farmer that was angry that the United States Army put soldiers on land he considered to be his. I didn't like it, but it only happened once, and I served in the Army and the Airborne, and uh, I've had to eat every day. That tells you something about survival needs. You need to eat. You need to be able to produce your own food. And you can do that at Backyard Food Production. You can learn how to turn your backyard into a food production machine. Check it out today 
BackyardFoodProduction.com. Marjorie Wildcraft is just awesome. She'll show you how to produce everything from carbohydrates to fats to protein and how to raise chickens, something that we'll talk about today. Uh, with that, let's talk about the year that was the episode 1396, Meet the Fugers. Hans Fuger has been a quite a social climber. He moved to Osberg, Germany in 1366 and married well twice. I don't know how he got rid of the first one, but I guess he upgraded. We'll talk about upgrading today, too, in a weird way. Anyway, he became a mover and a shaker within the Weaver's Guild, and at this time he was listed as the most highly taxed citizen on the rolls. While the occupation of Weaver may not seem like much in the Middle Ages, a Weaver's Guild is like modern-day auto unions in Detroit in their heyday. They make things happen or not happen if they don't like how things are going for the Weaver's Guild. They are also a source, source, source of social unrest, so the aristocracy is naturally cautious around them. In Hans' leadership role in the Weaver's Guild, he has managed to win certain civil rights for the membership. In the 16th century, the Fugger family will be known for banking, real estate, and establishing a social welfare system for the elderly. But for now, they are just rich weavers. My take by Alex Shrug, who puts these awesome things together for us at tspwiki.com. Let's resist the urge to poke fun at the name. What, Fuggers? Meet the Fuggers? Anyway, in the Middle Ages, the nobility has all, the, as the nobility wanes in influence, the peasant class is waxing and influential, and it's just one instance of that happening. Hans Fugger uses his marital connections to gain influence and leadership of the guild. His sons will use marital connections to become dealers in gold, minting coins, and even become richer than their father. Um, I have a couple of interesting takes on this. Number one, the word guild. We use that in permaculture all the time, putting plants together to guild together to work together. There's another function of gilding that you see guilds do in the workplace, especially with unions, and that's to limit. To limit. See, if I don't want a bunch of weeds in a place, I put a bunch of plants in there I do want, and not only do they benefit each other, they limit what can grow there by occupying the space and controlling the space. Workers' guilds didn't really exist so much for the benefit everybody there, but to limit things, including things like competition. So while they did fight for their workers' rights and they did gain certain rights for their workers and they did serve a purpose for that, over time the guild goes from creating growth opportunity to limiting growth opportunity, just like a guild of plants. So a lot of times people say, you know, do you think unions are good or bad? I think unions serve a purpose to a point, at which point they actually become stifling and limiting. Just a thought, different way to look at things. And the way that word applied in two different places actually does mean the same thing. Anyway, um, didn't remind you guys, so I will before I get into today's main subject. Do consider joining the Members Support Brigade today. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on either the Members Support Brigade uh banner or just click on members at the top and you can sign up there you help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode you get discounts on really great stuff that's all i'm going to say about that today before i get into the main topic today show though i have a little segment that would usually go on like a monday show that i wanted to share with you because i forgot about it on monday so i got this email from someone and my my hackles went up immediately that this was yellow journalism and in the end it is, even though it's telling the complete truth, and I thought I'd share it with you as a way to encourage critical thinking and being discerning in your thought and what you take in. 
Let me read this to you. This is on a blog called realpharmacy.com, and it's spelled pharmacy, F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, realpharmacy.com. And it's called Gardening and Sustainability Discouraged in Missouri Town. Violators will face fines and imprisonment. Let me read this to you. What would you do if the government came into your backyard and told you that your beautiful, well-maintained garden is now illegal? Considering most gardeners spend a lot of their hard-earned money, which has already been taxed, creating and maintaining gardens on their own property, which is taxed as well, you would probably be outraged. Sadly, this is exactly what is happening in Fremont Hills, Missouri. Dun-dun-dun! Growing food now under attack in Fremont Hills. The newest proposed ordinance would limit gardening to 10% of your backyard. Also under the proposed ban would be the growing of any vegetables, fruits, and herbs in any con in any kind of containers such as pots. Resident Julie Tiedman is not happy about the city threatening her wonderfully edible backyard. We are doing this as a family, she said. Not only have we spent a lot of time on this, we have spent a lot of money on this too. This is what we like to do, and we don't want the government entity or city to really be able to tell us we can't do so in our own backyard and what we can do as a family, Tiedemann explained. You just don't know where this is going to end, and I think we should be concerned for every citizen. What does the city have to say? Landscaping is really only one of the things we like to see everyone improve on their property. Certain you want to have some sort of controls, Mayor Tom Tobin reasoned. Okay, so the government wants some control on the property you own and pay taxes on, so how much control is enough? I don't want to necessarily tell someone what species of flower to plant, but uh, I do want to make sure that they keep their property up to a standard that uh, I'm keeping mine up to, Mayor Tobin told Kentucky 3. Obviously, the mayor isn't much of a gardener, but is that any reason that his fellow citizens should be able to sustainably provide for themselves? Let's take a look at some clauses in a lengthy list of ordinances that, if violated, are punishable by A, a fine not to exceed $500, and costs of imprisonment in county jail not exceeding 90 days, or by both such a fine and imprisonment. Water wells. Don't even think about it. A city website says drilling of individual or shared water wells in the city of Fremont Hills poses a substantial risk to water quality. Therefore, the drilling of individual or shelled wells for the purpose of providing water is prohibited. Composting. You've got a few acres of land somewhere on your private back lot. You'd like to recycle dead leaves, sticks, and weeds. The compost that you can use as fertilized vegetables and flowers. That shouldn't be a problem, right? Wrong. The city will fine you $200 for the first violation, $300 for the second violation, and $500 for each subsequent violation. Any piles of yard waste, leaves, sticks, limbs, timber, or dirt that remain on a lot developed or undeveloped located within the city for more than 10 days are illegal. Landscaping. The city wants to prevent families from growing their own food supply while mandating extremely wasteful amounts of water on lands. Quote, an irrigation system is mandatory for the front yard, side yards, and backyard. End quote. So you must water your lawn. You can keep reading it. You can keep reading it if you want to. I will post the link in today's show notes. I just want to read the end to you. Mayor Tobin really does want the town to look nice, even if it means less sustainable community regulation. Such as exterior paint colors must be approved by the Design Review Committee, would exemplify the city's appearance as a primary concern. Although considering many other rules prevent a sustainable lifestyle that are punishable by fines and imprisonment, perhaps a new ordinance is part of an effort to control the people and keep them dependent on corporate business resources. Is this a glimpse of the future for the entire country? 
What would you do if these ordinances were suddenly enforced in your community? Ah, oh, what a brilliant piece of bullshit! Okay, the way you read this, you think Fremont Hills, Missouri is this typical city or town, and this is just a, this is what they're gonna do to you. This is the Illuminati. They're coming to bullshit! Bullshit! I read this and I'm like, this is crap. So I looked up the city of Fremont Hills website, and you know what? Everything in this article is true. There's not a damn thing that's not true in this article, except the connotations that this is soon coming to you. The, the New World Order is going to get you. Yeah, yeah. Bullshit. Here's why. Well, after I looked up the website for the city of Fremont Hills and verified that this stuff was all true, and there was worse ordinances from this quote-unquote city, I was like, wow, this is a city with all this bullshit, yet this website doesn't look like a typical city website. It's pretty thin. So I thought, maybe I should find out where exactly the hell Fremont Hills, the city of Fremont Hills, Missouri is. So I put it in Google Maps, and then I switched to a satellite view, and I would say that uh, 80% of the quote-unquote city of Fremont Hills, maybe 70% is a little more fair, is the Fremont Hills Country Club. It's it's golf greens. I'd say 70% of the land. Okay, let me try to be totally honest. 60% is either facilities or the golf club, and then the, the houses primarily right around the country club. I don't have a little clicker counter, and I don't have the patience to count all the houses, but I'm thinking there might be... There might be 200 houses in this place. The city of Fremont Hills is a glorified HOA of a bunch of yuppie assholes that want to live on the ninth green. Okay? So while they went and created and incorporated as a city to further the agenda of their blue-haired old lady, pain-in-the-ass, bitchy-ass HOA, the entire tone of this article is absolute, complete, and total Bullshit. And if you want chickens and compost heaps and backyards, you don't move to a freaking country club because you know you're surrounded by blue-haired, pain-in-the-ass, old lady assholes. So you don't go there. You don't go to where there's an HOA or a, you know, a glorified HOA that has taken additional power as a city. This is not the New World Order. This is not attempts by corporate America to control where you get your food. There's plenty of that. It's like bioengineering and genetic modification and large-scale land ordinances, but this ain't it. And people that write shit like this, whoever's behind the real pharmacy.com blog, should be ashamed because you knew exactly what you were doing when you were doing it. You're a dumbass. I just thought I'd share that with you. This is why and how you must be discerning. When something seems over the top, please research it. And in this case, you could have researched it you know, superficially and said, well, there's the website. This is real. Look up the city. What does it look like? 200 houses surrounding a golf course is not a typical city. It's an HOA that incorporated as a city so it could further enforce its will. I have no doubt that this Mayor Tobin is an ass clown. I have no doubt if I met him and spoke to him for more than about 15 minutes that every 
shattering piece of my body would want to system a punch him in the freaking face and then go, you know what, don't do that, because it'll just knock him out and he won't actually feel it. I'd want to get him like in the liver where he could really feel it quiver through his body and ask him, why are you so stupid? I wouldn't do it because of the non-aggression principle, but I would want to. Because he's an idiot. But idiots conglomerating around a golf course isn't necessarily a bad thing. You can look at that shit and know that's a bunch of idiots. And don't go there. Do I feel bad for this lady? A little bit. A little bit. Not hugely, though. I really, really don't. Because you chose to live with these idiots. You chose to live on a golf course. And if you don't want to deal with golf course people... Don't live on golf courses. It really is that simple. Now, assuming you haven't moved into some yuppie asshole golf course community, um, you might want to raise chickens. If you live somewhere where you can't raise chickens, you might want to ask yourself why you live in that place. I'm just saying. That's my thoughts. Even if, even if you don't want chickens, I have a hard time living somewhere where somebody tells me I can't own a few birds. Because in the end, that's what we're talking about. Owning some birds. Um, a chicken doesn't really produce much more waste than a parrot. And if you're talking about four, six hens, something like that, you're talking about something that shouldn't bother anybody unless they're just, oh, a pain in the ass like these people. So don't live there. So what's so great about chickens? Let's start out with that. Why, why are chickens so popular? I would say in the homesteading uh, movement, the modern homesteading movement, the permaculture movement, the modern back-to-the-land movement, the modern survival movement, all of the things that people are doing to take control of their lives, probably the hottest thing is chickens. It's, it's kind of phenomenal if you look at it. If you uh, you know go to Tractor Supply and look at some of the magazines that are out just on backyard poultry keeping, if you start looking at some of the websites like BackyardChicken.com and things like that, how many people have, have taken to this as a hobby? Uh, how many people are completely enamored with it? How many people, you know, maintain a flock of six to twelve birds, wish they could have more and go, that's just all I can handle? Um, the, the myriad of products that have been built around it for watering, feeding, housing, the number of opinions out there, the num sheer number of Americans doing it, the popularity of fresh eggs, how, um, how popular fresh eggs are as a commodity now. And when you start sharing eggs, how, how hot that is, as far as hot, I would say, how well received that is. Um, you know, what's great about chickens? I think the first thing about chickens that's really great is how easy they are to raise. Um, there's not a tremendous amount, assuming you feed chickens the food that they need to eat, and give them water, and give them a place to get out of the heat or out of the cold. If you do that, a chicken is pretty self-sufficient raises itself. It's easy to raise a chicken. The next thing is, well, they, they do produce eggs. From about 18 weeks on... Um, chickens tend to, uh, to, to pop out an egg or two, a day, an egg, you know, an egg a day or so. Um, generally I've seen with my birds, when I do the averages, most of my girls are giving me six eggs a week, uh, during peak laying season. So they produce eggs. They do provide some meat. If you notice the show's pretty late today, that's because, well, of chickens, Uh, today was a day that a bunch of young birds went in. Well, last night was a day that a bunch of young birds went in with the older birds. So this was the first day they're out together. They're in a relatively confined space. 
and some of my young birds are capable of getting over the five-foot fence, so I've been uh, watching out the window and largely rounding them up uh, by pausing the show already twice today, going out there capturing uh, young adolescent birds and uh, trimming one side of their wing and putting them back in. I figure the ones that get out get a wing clipped, and the ones that don't get to keep their feathers. So... Um, that's sort of what held me up today. But another thing that held me up is, you know, I had to see when I let them out today, and I've got like 50 new birds that went in with a, a, a core flock of about 16, would there be any problems? And I have two young roosters from an earlier wave that I brought up this year that are from a cross of a Rhode Island red to a, a, a white leghorn cross. And uh, I like them. They're good-looking birds, and uh, I thought with as big as the flock's going to get, upgrade the Rhode Island Red Rooster will probably tolerate you know a rooster or two in his flock. Uh, they'll all have enough hens to be happy in the end. But which one do I keep? Well, when I let everybody out today, I have this one little Faomi cross that's about as big as a big quail, and he was attacking the hell out of it and trying to breed it and attacking a bunch of other birds and being pretty ruthless in it. So guess what he got to do today? Yeah, he got to hang from a live oak tree and be bled out and parted out into breast cutlets and uh, leg and thigh quarters. So I had to clean a chicken today. It didn't take very long, but it just added to everything else, and that put the show out late. But that gave me some meat. I'll talk more about the meat that I got from that bird in a bit. But they provide some meat. If you're raising meat birds, you can get quite a bit of meat. But when it comes to your laying flocks and coals, The word some meat is the way to look at it, and it's not a significant amount, um, though it can add up over time. Uh, they provide entertainment. You know, I, I love to watch my birds. I, I think they're just, they're just cool. They have personalities. You start to know one bird from another. Um, they do a lot of things that you can only call hysterical antics. Watching them chase grasshoppers is fun. They, they're an entertaining thing. Um, They are largely self-sufficient. That's part of easy to raise, but it really needs to be said again. Um, if I compare them to a dog, for instance, my dog requires attention or he destroys things. My dog requires attention or he demands it. My dog requires attention. My dog will dig holes, so will chickens, but my dog will dig a bigger hole. My dog tears things apart. My dog needs to be fed a couple times a day. He needs a vet trip once a year. He needs vaccinations. He has to be walked. I mean, you know, it requires some effort to take care of a dog. Many other livestock require daily attention. A chicken pretty much needs to make sure, you need to make sure he has food and water and the ability to thermoregulate. Thermoregulate means not confined in a place where he can't get cooler or warmer. That's what it means. You can be confined, but you better have the ability to find shade or find sun and, and things like that. Uh, if you have food, water, and the ability to thermoregulate and they're kept in relatively sanitary conditions, if you could automate everything and you could probably pay attention to your chicken once a week and, and be just fine, you might need to pay a little more attention if you want eggs so they're not going bad on you, but a chicken doesn't really need you. They really don't. And that self-sufficiency makes everything easier. And they produce fertilizer. Uh, the stuff that comes out of the chicken coop, the bedding is, you know, once composted, is some of the best fertilizer you'd ever get your hands on. High in nitrogen and other minerals. Um, so they do all these wonderful things. What's not so great, though? I mean, let's be honest. It's not all, it's not all fun and games with chickens. There is some work involved and some cost involved. First one, I'm going to start with where I stopped on the last one. They provide fertilizer. Another way to look at that is poop management. 
Um, when you go in your coop, and I don't care if you're doing the Paul Wheaton Nirvana bullshit way of raising chickens, sooner or later they're going to go in a coop, they're going to poop on it. And even if you have an open bottom, which only works so much for so much of the year, there's going to be poop stuck to things. And sooner or later you got to clean that poop. And if you if you are having them poop on straw or some other form of bedding and, and, and making fertilizer out of it, that's great. But you're still dealing with poop. And most people aren't like, yay, I get to play with poop today, you know, or something's wrong with you. So you do have to deal with their waste. The next thing is, they can be destructive. If you have garden beds, you either need to control your chickens with paddocks or electronet or a coop and run or some other ways we'll talk about today, or need to put a fence that's chicken-proof around your garden. Because they will go in there and they will destroy everything. And if you build nice hoogle mounds, for some reason they love the ends of them where they can really dig them and totally erode them down to almost nothing. And when a chicken digs a hole in a garden, let me tell you how a chicken digs a hole. Those little feet are a magnificent tool. And harnessed and put in the right area, they can disturb soil and work for you. But when they dig a hole where you don't want it, especially a deep, significant hole like in a garden bed, they dig in extremely fine particles of dirt that fly through the air with the greatest of ease like the man on the flying trapeze. In other words, it's gone. You can't just rake it up and fill the hole back in when chicken gets done with it. Generally speaking, you're bringing dirt in to fix a hole. So they can be destructive. They will come up on your porch and shit on your porch. They will shit on your chairs. They will decide your chairs are great for roosting on and they will crap all over them. If you leave your garage or your shop open, they'll go in there and lay eggs up on shelving and they'll crap all over the place. Chickens are destruction if not controlled. And there's always the chance that they're going to get out of the controlled area and wreak havoc. So it's something to consider. There's the cost of upkeep. You know, you can look at a chicken and say, well, a bird cost me 50 cents a day in food. That's, that's, that's minor. Well, it, it, it you know, it, it starts to add up if you're keeping 50 or 100 birds. So as you start to scale upward, there's definitely a cost of upkeep there with feed. And even with a small flock, there's some cost associated with it. It's not free eggs. It's higher quality eggs than you can buy for less than you would pay for a lower quality product. It's still a cost. Um, housing requirements. Uh, I've seen people spend $2,000 for a chicken coop the size of my desk. I don't get it, but I've seen it done. Um, my chickens live in a castle, as far as I'm concerned. They have a 12 by 16 uh, shed with 8-foot high rafters, and uh, they love it. And nice red barn finish, and they have that because the guy that lived here before me put it in there as a goat barn. Uh, I don't know that I would have ever made that high of an investment in a chicken. But, you know, if you want a large flock, and when I get to floor space requirements, that really lets me have about 64 adult birds. So if you start thinking about a flock of layers and you get into the hundreds, you have to really start thinking about the housing requirements. Where is that house going to go? How are you going to maintain it? How are you going to keep it from getting too hot in the summer if you live in a hot climate or too cold in the winter if you live in a cold climate or both if you live in a climate like mine? Um, you have to take care of... The waste that's in that housing, that's part of the requirements. You need to deal with insects that, that become a problem like mites. Um, that's pretty easy with something like DE, diametaceous earth, but it's another thing that has to be done. 
You have to keep water and food for them near their housing and in their housing when they're confined at night. You have to make sure the housing is predator-proof because everything likes to eat chicken. And um, the, the best time in the world if you're a predator to eat a chicken is about, oh, an hour and a half after dark because they just, once it's dark, they just sit there. The chicken you cannot catch, you can just walk in and pick up, and it doesn't know what the hell to do with itself once it's a couple hours in the dark. So housing requirements are a big deal. Winter needs. You know, I mean, during the summer, we have some some tanks out there they drink out of and some chicken waters, and when they skank them up, we just dump them out, turn the garden hose on, and water comes out of the hose and fills it back up. When everything freezes in winter, it's a little harder to deal with. Um, we'll probably have to put some sort of supplemental heat in our coop uh, for this next coming winter because last year some of my birds got a little bit of frostbite on their combs. It wasn't anything that ended up being really bad, but you can still look at a couple of them, and you can see dark spots where that happened. Um, so their their needs in winter are different than their needs throughout the rest of the year, frankly. Um, they eat more, and they cost more to maintain, and they give you less. So you get less eggs in the winter. You can supplement lighting and stuff like that, but in the end, you're going to get less. And, and remember to deal with this, or remember to think about this. When you buy a chicken, whether or you hatch your own, I don't care, you got a little hen, a pullet. Right, so a girl is a pullet, and a boy is a cockerel, right? And then they grow up into a hen and a rooster, okay? So you got your little baby pullet hen, and she's sitting there, and she's so little cute, and she sits in your hand. Already inside of her, just like a woman, is every egg, is a tiny cell, that she will ever lay in her life, and she has a finite amount of eggs. When you provide supplemental lighting, and you get your birds to lay better for, and I'm not saying not to do it because I do it, but just understand this: when you when you get them to lay better for you in the in the winter months, you're gonna pay for it down the road. And how many molt uh, cycles you keep them is affected because they're gonna lay less as they get older because they fired more of the shells, so to speak, is the way to look at it. So you can only ever, no matter how hard you try, get so many eggs out of a chicken before that chicken goes into what we call in female women menopause. And there's no more eggs. It just isn't happening anymore. Right? So that's, you know, that's something to think about as well. And then dealing with culling. For the person with a, you know, I consider what I have like a, a mini farmstead or a true homestead. Three acres, dozens of birds, multiple species. I'm growing meat birds anyway. I, I constantly deal with the reality that not everything gets to live for a full year. And that's the way things are here, and that's why one of our roosters today, it was just like, dude, I've been trying to figure out which of the two of you to keep. You went psycho on the baby birds. You've made my decision for me. And he was hanging from the oak tree 20 minutes after I made that decision. Right now, his breast cutlets and thigh and leg pieces are sitting in salt water, a little, little bit of salty water, and cold salty water in the refrigerator brining for a few hours, I'll pat him dry right after this show is done, and I will set him back in that refrigerator, and he will become something delicious tomorrow. Okay, And because of that type of volume here, and because life and death is a daily thing here, because right now there's still maybe 10 uh, broiler chickens in my freezer from the last meat cycle, since I'm thinking about maybe running some broiler chickens this fall for another round of meat, since I know that I just hatched a bunch of my own birds and there's at least 15, 20 cockerels out there that are going to have to graduate into the freezer or the slow cooker this year, 
calling for me is not an issue. It just isn't. Because when you do things at, at the numbers that I'm doing, which are still relatively small, but bigger than the average person that's just a small homesteader or an urban chicken keeper, urban permaculturist, suburbanite uh, doing chickens, there's enough volume that you stay in touch with that reality. For the person that buys four chickens, six chickens, and has them in their cute little house that they paid too much money for, living in their backyard with their two-sided runs and, and pet them and, and cuddling them every day, there comes a time when that chicken just is no longer a productive chicken. And it's usually one and a half years of productivity drops. So from six months to one and a half years, that bird is in the prime of its egg-laying life. It will go through a molt where it will almost stop or stop laying during that molting procedure, and it will put beautiful feathers back on, and it will be a little bit older than a year and a half. And from one and a half years to two and a half years, it will be more than productive enough for the home flock keeper. It will lay less eggs. It may go from laying six eggs a week to four to five eggs a week. And there'll be bigger eggs, and that chicken will be productive. And then it will molt again at two and a half years, at which time its egg-laying capacity most of the time will plummet to two eggs, maybe if you're lucky, three eggs a week, and some weeks, one or two eggs. And then, is it really worth keeping? Maybe, but then it will molt again. And then you will have, most likely, a barren chicken. So now, if you had four chickens or six chickens that you all got as little chickies, and you petted them and loved on them, and they're three and a half to four and a half years old, and they are laying almost no eggs, and you are feeding them every single day, If you still want fresh eggs, something's got to be done. And for some people, that reality is going to be tough. And they'll put advertisements on Craigslist that basically say, we have free chickens that don't lay anymore for anybody that wants them, but we want them to go a special farm where they get to run and be free. And we don't want anybody to come take them that will kill them and eat them. And that's not going to happen. That's a big old wah-wah. Those birds have done what they've got to do. And at that point... You're either feeding an animal that's an energy and money sink or you're terminating its life and transferring it into meat and something productive and you're replacing it. And that's a reality. And that's a real negative for some people. Some people have a real hard time understanding that that animal is not a puppy dog that's going to lay with you in bed until it's old and, and you know, it, it, it's pretty much lived out all its life. That it's still going to have quite a bit of life ahead of it Uh, if you choose to, but the economics will be such that it won't make sense. Because the small backyard peeper, per, keeper that's keeping six birds probably logistically would have a hard time keeping 12. So to make room for six new ones, six old ones gotta go. So it's, it's, it's something to think about. And if you're, you know, if you're doing things like I am and you're hatching your own birds, there's a significant portion that are gonna be roosters. And you can only keep so many roosters because One rooster is not, and we'll get to this later, but I don't think of roosters as, a, as, a, as an energy and money sink. I think they earn their keep. But there's a, a finite number of roosters per hens to ratios that's going to work out for you that way. First of all, they'll fight, and they'll do battle, and they won't be happy, and they'll disrupt the whole flock. If you have two roosters and four hens, it's a recipe for disaster. It really is. Now, I'm sure somebody's got two roosters that grew up together that somehow figured out how to manage having four or six hens between them, but it's not usual, okay? So you're always going to have culling, and that means that you're going to have situations where it's not even if you, you know, whether it bothers you or not, 
But just like today, it took time. It takes time to kill. Um, and you don't get a huge return for most of your dedicated egg breeds as far as meat goes. All right. So those are all negatives. And I'm not trying to put you off. I'm just saying those are the things you should consider because otherwise you end up with chickens that you don't really know what to do with. And you're not going to rehome them. You, you, you can give them to me, but they're going in the slow cooker. They're, they're becoming stew or soup or something else I'll tell you about later today as a little bonus. All right, so let's go with ways to raise chickens. If you can get past his Nirvana-level hippie bullshit about why his way is the way that it should be, Paul Wheaton probably has the best article in the world about the different methods of raising chickens, and while I don't agree with all his conclusions, he will lay out for you the basics of how all of those things are done and the negatives and positives really, really well in that article. I'll put a link in today's show notes. The, the classic method for raising chickens, the way that most people do it, is a coop and run, which Paul says, don't do it, it's terrible for the chicken, it'll be traumatized, and I think that's total BS. I don't think a coop and run is the ultimate, I actually agree with Paul, if you can do it, paddock shifting of chickens is the best way to go. But coop and run, especially for the suburbanite, who can keep a few chickens, is probably the best way for them to manage chickens. With a coop and run, you know your chicken's not hanging out in your neighbor's garden, pissing them off, and you know creating an ordinance where one didn't exist. If you have a coop and run system in a suburban backyard, the chickens can get outside and move and stretch their legs, and bugs will come in there, and they'll get to eat them, and they'll dig around in deep litter, and they'll be chickens, and they'll be happy as shit. Okay, they really will. They'll be, will they be as happy as if they can fly up in trees and be a free chicken? No. But they will be happy and they won't know any different. And people that have this set up usually come home at some point during the day after work and then a lot of people that have that set up can then sit in their backyard for the last hour of the day and open up that run and let that chicken free range in the backyard while it can be supervised. Especially if you've done some things to at least, with low fencing, fence them out of the areas you don't want them into. And you can hang out there with them and give them a little bit of food and, and be a chicken mama or chicken data, daddy. And, and, and they get some running around. And then they, they willingly know when the sun starts to go down that it's dangerous to be a chicken out in the open so they go back into their hole. And that's just a great way to handle a small flock in suburbia. While I don't think it's the best way to raise a chicken, I think it is the best option for people that mom and dad both get up, dress junior and, 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 and junior ed, and send them off to school in their lives and get in their cars and drive to work and want to know that when they come home, their chicken will be where the hell it's supposed to be and they won't have turned neighbors into enemies. It's, it's, for those people, it's probably the best. It is the method my grandfather used on his little farmstead. And what we did is we had a great big huge vegetable garden. And he grew corn. He grew corn and some pumpkins and beans. Kind of sort of three sisters now that I think about it. And the way he had this is he had a chicken coop. And on one side of the chicken coop was a run. And on the other side of the chicken coop was a run. And the chicken coop let the chickens into one side of the run all year long. And we just kept throwing every kind of, you know, the neighbors raked up a bag of leaves, you know, and, and put them out for the trash man. We went up and dumped the leaves in. The neighbor across the street had a big pile of horse manure they couldn't use. They had more horse manure than they could compost. Into the chicken run it goes. 
scrap food, whatever. Hey, go rake leaves. We don't rake leaves, Grandpa. We do today because the chickens need leaves. In they go, right? So everything we could get, deep litter in the chicken run. And the chickens would go to bed every night. And once in a while, we'd let the chickens out, usually at the point where they were almost ready to go to bed. I mean, if you want to free-range your chickens and not have them go far, you see that point at night where they're starting to go in the coop, they're thinking about roosting, but they're not sure yet, and is it really time to go to bed? And you open that at that point, and they come out. They usually don't go very far. And they usually spend like 10 or 15 minutes out and about, and they do very little damage in that, and then they go back to bed. But we would do that, and then that next year, we'd plant your big plants, maybe a few squash, some pumpkins, all the corn, and some beans in that area. And then the vegetable garden just did its thing like always. And then that next year, they'd go on the other side of the run, and that's a classic victory garden, as they called them in uh, in England, where they would raise chickens for eggs and feed them kitchen scraps and have them go to two different runs and rotate. And had we done winter gardening, we probably would have you know moved them to a winter garden. But all the leftovers and all of the weeds that grew for that crop season next year, those chickens just tore that up. And Paul will tell you how horrible it is, and I will tell you that they were happy chickens. Happiest they could be? No. But they weren't diseased, and they weren't harmed, and they weren't hurt, and they weren't traumatized. They were happy chickens. The next way that you can do chickens, and this does work in suburbia, is with tractoring, which Paul thinks is horrible. And let me tell you something about, I'm going to stop picking on Paul, because this is what I learned about Paul that made me totally content with his opinions. The last time we had our debate about chickens, we did so at Permaculture Voices, and he said, well, I'm different than most people. I said, well, yeah. And he said, you know, have you ever been to a cider festival? I said, okay, yeah, I've been to cider festivals. He goes, you know, they put a tarp down, and then they shake the tree, and the apples fall down on the tarp, and they pick all the apples up, and they make cider out of them. I'm like, yeah. He goes, I'm offended by that. I don't think that's the right way to treat an apple tree. And I said, you know what? We never have to argue again. He said, well, why? I said, because I thought I was having a, a disagreement and an intellectual conversation about chicken management with a person that was rational and logical. Now that I know you're crazy, I can stop worrying about all your little ecocentricities because you're just nuts, and that's okay. I love you like a brother, and you're crazy. That's cool. And now I know. So I'm going to stop picking on Paul. But Paul does say tractoring's bad because he's looking at tractoring, I think, completely the opposite of the way that most people practice tractoring. And that is he sees you put the chicken in the tractor and you set the tractor down and the tractor's there, the chicken's in there, and the chicken just stays there until the ground is bare and then you move it. And this is done and there's a purpose for it, but it's it's not done over and over and over. This is done for establishing a food forest or a garden bed. And there's ways that can be done too. You put chickens in a chicken tractor uh, with some way that you can open the lid and put more stuff in and you keep adding mulch. And you keep you do like the deep mulching thing for the run, and then you, when you've done it long enough, you move it, and what's left behind is a prepared raised garden bed with no you know wooden sides or anything that will grow great food for you. Let it rest for a couple weeks, and uh, then go ahead and plant it to it. And it's an awesome way to do things. But tractoring is pretty much some sort of movable cage with a roof. The bird can't fly out of, and that means that something like a hawk can't fly into and eat your chicken. It is probably the most cost-effective means of raising chickens for meat for market, if you're going to do this for a profit. It does work in suburbia because it lets you get your birds out on the lawn 
with them still not being able to fly into the neighbor's yard and shit on the neighbor's fence and piss the neighbor off. And, you know, a dog or a cat is less likely to be able to kill your chicken. And you can't have a great big giant Pyrenees or Anatolian livestock guardian dog on your quarter-acre suburban lot barking all night pissing people off. So you need some protection for the chicken. And so tractoring works. And um, it's, it's labor-intensive, though. And the reason it's labor-intensive is every day the chicken has to go from tractor to coop. Now, if you have a mobile coop with a tractor type thing that can move around your yard, that works pretty good. The, the point of concern that I get, and it's where I share Paul's concern, you need a fairly large space for chickens to be there for a full day and not really overgraze. So when you're raising broilers that are being heavily supplementally fed and you got really big tractors and you can use an actual tractor or a foil or something to help move them or you got two farm laborers to move them and they're designed to be moved and they're out in the open and they fit everywhere because you're more paddocking them through a field, it works good. In suburbia, most chicken tractors are relatively small and if you put four chickens in you know a five by five area which is pretty good size for a suburban chicken tractor they will seriously take things down in a day and then if you're trying to move a coop with that that's pretty big and I there's a lot of places in your yard you can't get them to right so that's why I actually for suburbanites prefer a coop and run with limited free range access under supervision at the end of the night But tractoring will work either place, and you have to decide for yourself what works for you. The next one, I think, is probably the worst idea in the world for chickens. Unless you live in a place where there's nothing that you own that chickens can damage, um, and by some miracle, chickens hate your house and all the stuff you love. And that's free range. Free range seems like a great idea. Well, let the birds be birds. They'll go out and do whatever they want. They'll make their living off the land. They'll be happy chickens. Okay, here's what happens. They shit on your porch. They shit on everything that you own. They lay eggs under a car that you don't use often, so you find 15 eggs under there, and you wonder where all your eggs were going. They were baking in the sun. Um, they will find every place you don't want them to dig in, and they will dig in and dust back there and pull things up. If you have a garden, and most people who keep chickens who have a garden, they will eat everything that you would like to eat and more which is part of what makes them easy to feed, but it's also part of what makes them bad for a garden. They will erode things. They will dig holes. They are a disaster in a true, full-on, free-range environment. I'm basically saying don't do it. Now, if you live in a place where you're pretty much you know, living like a hunter-gatherer rather than a, a true homesteader, And pretty much they're free-ranging here and in and there and lawn and woods. And maybe you can fence in your porch so they can't get up on the porch. And you want to let them free-range in that environment. Or you're in a Marjorie Wildcraft environment where she has like almost 100 acres. And she has them roosting in pine trees. And she girdles the pine trees in metal. And her garden is fenced so the chickens can't get in. And they spend their time everywhere else. And they have dogs to look after them and, and what have you. And uh, what then, then you can free range in that environment. You really can. And it's okay. It's still not optimum, but it's okay. And then there's what I do right now. And I'm doing this because 
with my time, resources, and trying to figure out what I want to do in the area that they're kept to, it's what I call a limited free range or a restricted free range. What I mean by that, I have a three-acre property that's fenced into two main areas. One is about a two-acre area that the house sits on, and my main food forest fits on, and my gardens fit on, and my shop, and my buildings, and my barns, and all that stuff's there. Then there's a fence that goes down and fences off the one acre that's left over on my west pasture. That area, there's nothing for a chicken to hurt. There are two areas that are like runs that were for goat pens. One is for the geese and one is for the chickens. And then there's the whole balance of the rest, which is probably three-quarters of an acre to eight-tenths of an acre that's just wide open. There's trees. There's grass. There's pasture. It's not lush pasture, but it's there. And pretty much my birds are given either for half the day or in some days the whole day, free range across that area. This keeps them from shitting on my porch and messing things up. And they stay in this area. They know this is their home. And the new young ones are still, some of them they have enough flight ability or getting over the fence and having to be wing clipped and thrown back in there. But in general, my adult birds tend to stay over there. And that works for now. And I think that can work. And the bigger the area that you can restrict them in into that, the better it'll work for you. So it's like one giant paddock that's so big they can't hurt everything. It won't maximize their work for you. It won't really improve the land by pulsing them through it the way a paddock shift model will. But it'll work. And your chickens will be happy. They, because they get to do whatever the hell they want. And they'll make a good living off a fairly sized block of land that way. Then there's paddock shift management, which is Paul's holy grail. And I agree, if you can make it work, then it works. It is not, it is not labor unintensive unless you have permanent fencing. If you have permanent fencing and either a mobile coop or permanent fencing with some kind of a laneway system, which is what I'm looking at doing, where all you have to do is close the coop and open the coop and give them access to whatever area you want them to have access to, it's pretty low maintenance. If you're talking about electronet fencing and moving fencing, it's very labor-intensive. There's ways that it's done that's kind of a hybrid. You have basically a chicken tractor acting as a coop, okay? And then you have electronet fencing around it. That works. It's very effective for managing uh, birds for farming purposes and things like that, if you have enough manpower to be able to do it, and you have enough electronet to make a big enough paddock that maybe you can put the birds in their tractor, and you know they're going to spend the night in there for protection, and that means they're going to really poop up and scratch up that area in the tractor. So the next day, you move the tractor, but not the electronet. And then the third day, you move the tractor, but not the electronet. And on the fourth day, you move the, the, the electronet and the, then the tractor, and then you let the birds out. So that means you're only having to reposition your electronet once every three days. And if you have a big enough area and you're following the one-third grazing rule, which is when the chickens have taken down the greenery by one-third, then you move them, this works. This, this, this works. In an ideal situation, you have permanent fencing set up, and you have a mobile chicken coop, and gates big enough to fit it through, and you put your chickens in a paddock, and you open up their coop for them, and they go out and they do what chickens do, and the coop is closed up at night to protect them from evil, and all day long they go, and when they've grazed enough, you move the coop, 
You open the gate, chickens run through the gate because all the new ice cream's in the next paddock. You put their coop over there, and you're good to go. That is ideal until you price out fencing and say, how much do I want to pay for chickens and eggs? Fencing's expensive, and electro-net fencing is not a one-time investment. It breaks down in UV. It gets tangled. It gets torn. It does not last forever, and every three to four seasons, even if you're doing really well taking care of it, you're replacing it, or at least some of what you're using. Additionally, it's a nightmare if you're trying to use it in wooded areas that are great for grazing chickens. Because now you're trying to get it through woods and tangles and things like that. So I'm thinking of getting somebody in here to do fencing and creating three to four paddocks in my west pasture. And that would give me one-third to one-quarter acre paddocks, permanent fencing, and creating a laneway system so I can use the stationary coop and I can give the chickens access to wherever I want. That would be ideal. But it's going to be expensive. I may choose to do it for the long term, but if I'm doing it to make money, it's going to be a long time to buy that fencing back. Now, where the fencing works is if you're paddock shifting and you're doing hogs and you're doing cattle and you're doing chickens and you're doing turkeys and you're doing ducks and you're doing all of that and then you're creating a market for that Fencing gets paid off relatively quickly. Portable fencing is inexpensive and it does work in the right environment. Can If you're in really rocky ground, putting the fencing in the ground is impossible in some situations. Like it is here. It doesn't work. Paul created this washer system. These concrete washers that you make in the ground and then a pole there and it holds up the pole. That works if you can still get it in the dirt a little bit. But it does. I'm telling you, fencing falls over, birds get out of it. It's not that simple. It really isn't. Permanent fencing is the ideal. And then you still have to deal with birds getting out. And they will get out. I'm looking at one right now, and I'm not going to pause and go get that one. That's the black one I've chased a bunch of times now, and I will probably just get him tonight when, he calm, when, she, when she calms down. Uh, and she'll lose her wing feathers and go back in. So permanent fencing with an electric wire, a single-strand electric wire at the top, that's high enough that a chicken can't fit underneath it, but high enough that the bird is likely to try to perch on the fence, not the wire, so he makes a good ground and shocks the shit out of himself and goes back in, that is, I agree, that is perfect if you can afford it and if it works. And a movable coop with Electronet, beautiful. If it's logistically realistic under the circumstances that you're living in and the model that you're operating under and the land that you're on. Okay, so those are your basic methods. I'm going to go deep into them or anything like that. You can look up Paul's article, and you can look up different articles just by using Google on all the different methods. I would say the one that most people are going to use in a small holding is going to be coop and run with limited supervised free range, or it's going to be tractoring of some sort. And it's probably not going to be paddock shift unless you have the ability to be home during the day. because it, it's And not because you need to be there all day to watch them, but you might, depending on what you have and where you're at, but because it takes time. And it's time that the, the person that has a full-time job probably doesn't have. Coop and run, easy. Let the birds out on whatever side of the, you know. And you can do two, three, four runs that are like a daisy around your coop. Paul hates that. I love that. It's basically paddock shifting on small paddocks. Just, just saying. All right.
Now, let's talk about how many birds you want if you want a laying flock. Here's some basic facts that will help you decide. Most hens lay five to six eggs a week in the peak of their production, in the peak production time of the year, which is spring to fall. Sometimes they wane a little bit in summer, um, just due to heat. They just, they're tired, they're stressed, and they put a little less energy into making eggs. So they wane a little bit, but not a lot. Winter, they go down, okay? In, in winter, my hens tend to lay three eggs a, a week. Um, so if I have six eggs, I'm getting about 18 eggs a week or a dozen and a half eggs a week. That's still plenty. We have way more than six hens now. Um, that's more than we need. I eat a lot of eggs. Dorothy eats an egg every once in a while. So right, right now, with, with even just a small flock, we produce more eggs than we can personally use and plenty to give away but not enough to sell. That's why we're up in the flock so we can have a small egg sale stand. Um, doing the math, birds eat about a quarter pound of feed a day. So if you have 10 birds, they're going to eat about two and a half pounds of food a day. And that doesn't sound like much, but even with 10 birds and two and a half pounds of feed a day, that's 20 days for a 50-pound sack of feed. Uh, that means you're going through a, you know, a sack of feed about every three weeks for just 10 birds. Now, will they eat less than that if they're, if they're earning a living off the land, so to speak? Sure. Sure they will. Um, they'll eat that much anyway if you let them. They, they'll eat more if you let them, honestly, especially your larger breeds. And do you think they're going to earn their living off the land year-round? They're not. In the winter, they're going to get a lot less, and you might end up feeding them three-tenths, .35 pounds, .4 pounds, depending on the bird, the breed, and how cold it is in the winter. Um, so you do have to budget for feed. And if you want high-quality feed, it costs more money. Um, we pay almost double for our non-GMO feed. It's not even fully organic. We're looking for bulk feed now. We're looking for other options. You know, we're talking to grocery store managers and seeing if we can get, you know, leftover vegetable scraps and things like that. But that doesn't provide protein. That's just bulk. But it does help. Um, I saw Jeff Lawton doing the composting with chickens and the way they're doing it, and no grain and getting plenty of eggs. And I think that's great, but I do think that birds need some protein. Um, and they're only going to get so much protein unless you got them out free ranging or at least large paddocking and, you know, things like that. So um, that's a grown bird, by the way, too, that's eating a quarter pound of food a day. I do want to say something here before I go on about coop sizes and things like that with layers. I do not consider roosters to be the money sink that some people do. Let's go back to the reality here. A quarter pound of feed a day. Uh, a rooster may eat a little less because he's not laying eggs. But let's say he's eating a quarter pound of feed a day. And if we take a quarter pound and we take 365 days a year, rounding it off, let's say that rooster's going to eat 91 pounds of food a year. If you're buying really high-quality non-GMO organic feed and you're paying 50 cents a pound, that, that bird costs you about $45 a year. Now, I want to ask you something. If you wanted to hire somebody that would spend all its time looking after your six hens or your eight hens. And if anything came after that, uh, it may not successfully, but will we'll give its life to try to protect them. That would run out with, you know, one and a half to two inch long pointed objects and start stabbing the shit out of it. That any time it saw something dangerous, you know, any time it saw something dangerous, they would yell to the chickens, hey, hi, here comes a hawk, Right? 
that if your if your hens started to stray a little bit further away from their their home than they're supposed to, would go get it. That if they didn't come home at night, would go out and look for it and try to find it. If, and would occasionally find a great big wonderful yummy bug treat and say, "I'm gonna catch that, hold on to it, and since I know I don't need it, I'm gonna let the the girl have it." How much do you think somebody would charge you to do that job? You think they can you can you would, if I asked you to come look after my birds, twenty four seven three sixty five, and I wanted you to do all those things for me, would you do that for forty five fifty bucks a year? And you'd say, hell no, I wouldn't do it for a day for 50 bucks, dude. Your rooster will. For $45 a year, a rooster will do all of those things for your hens and more. And here's a fundamental reality. If you have eight hens and no roosters, one of those hens is going to act like a rooster, and her laying rate is going to dramatically decrease, and you're almost going to be like getting the eggs from seven hens. This just happens. It does. Because there's a, there's a need in that flock structure for that masculine energy, that protective attitude. And your dominant hen will assume that role if there's no man to do it. Just like a woman doesn't want to be the man of the house, but steps up and does it when she's put into the, 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 the role of a single mother. Because someone's got to do it. She'll never do it the way a man would. And she can't do all the things that a man will do. And she can't do it, she can't do it as well. And I'll tell you why. Because we're now off the chickens and back to some of the previous discussions the last two weeks. I don't care if she's as good at it. She can't do it as well as a man could if both of them were there. Because she can't full-time be the man. At some, some point, she has to be the woman and not the man. right? So she has to have the female energy side and the male energy side. Just like a man couldn't be as good of a mother by himself as a mother and father could together. Because even if he can do all the maternal things right up before he's breastfeeding, and just that's the only thing he can't pull off. He can be just as understanding and caring and snot-wiping and butt-cleaning as a woman is, and just as good when he's doing that, he's not doing the male thing. So that chicken's put into this the same kind of situation. She's she's a girl, but she's trying to be a guy, and it doesn't work. That, that flock is designed to run... With a big old spur having fighting mean ass rooster. And that doesn't mean mean to you, but it means if something threatens his girls, he's taking it out. And and my bird, who we've affectionately named Upgrade, man, he fits that role. I've seen this bird catch big old grasshopper, make a noise, one of the girls comes over, steps back, lets her have it. I would have never believed it if I hadn't seen it. He's a Rhode Island red rooster, he's a great bird. And anything that's a threat. Man, that bird goes ape on. There was a, a, a rat snake that was in the, the, the coop eating the eggs. And I love snakes, and I don't like to kill snakes. But I'm like, I've had enough of these damn things getting in there and trying to eat the babies and eating the eggs and all. So I whacked him against the coop and threw him out in the yard. And upgrade, tore, what was left of him, tore that snake up. I've seen the big, uh, we don't really have many uh, hawks around here, but the vultures come over and a big bird hovering to a chicken is dangerous. And I've seen him push those girls up into the weeds against the fence and stand there and look like what's going on. I don't consider them money sinks. But there is a limit to how many you can have and you may not be able to have them in suburbia. And my comments about that one bird not laying as much, doing the masculine role, would be better off with a rooster. Don't let that dissuade you from getting hens if you live in a place where you can have chickens but not roosters. I'm just saying if you can have a rooster and he's not going to be a pain in the ass... Consider adding a rooster, and don't don't begrudge him 
his 45 cents worth of fee today because he more than earns it. Next, I want to talk about, I talked about, you know, budgeting for housing requirements and all. But I want to give you some numbers so you can think to yourself, not just how many birds that I want, how many birds can I, I handle? So these numbers are what are considered ideal numbers. These are the numbers that are recommended as minimums. For coop size, it's highly recommended that you use no more than one bird per four square feet. Okay? Which is pretty easy to figure out. That would mean if you had an eight by eight coop, eight birds. Eight times eight is six, or eight, eight, eight I'm sorry, you, you could have as many as 16 birds. So you could have 16 birds in an eight by eight coop. I have a 12 by 16 coop. It works out to 64 birds, one bird per square foot. Can you do more than that? Yeah. Especially if they're not confined in there except at night. Because you will find that your birds are all in a great big huddle. And that's going to play into the next you know, minimum that I'm going to give you. But the reality is if you have layers, they're going to go in there to lay, and they're going to go in there when they want to you know, either cool off or warm up, and, and they're going to run around in there time to time. And that's really a pretty good guideline, about four square feet per bird. So if you had my 12 by 16 shed and you put 80 birds in there, would I you know, punch you in the face with a railroad spike or something and tell you you're an evil person? No. And I think that the bigger you get, the more you can fudge a little bit. But as you scale down, that's where it gets hard to add, a, you know, you know, if you go down to an 8x8 eight eight and, you know, try to put, you know, 30 birds in there, you're, you're really pushing what you can get away with because they're really stacked. They don't have room to spread out. Um, and then your birds need to roost. And I've seen people go through all kinds of crap to put roosts in that are round. You know, they find tree branches and shape them and stick them in there. And because uh, the bird wants to roost in a tree and you need a round roost for them to grab onto and all. And all I've ever used are two by fours because it's interior. You're using like two by four stud lumber. The stuff sells for like a dollar ninety nine for a seven foot six inch long two by four. Um, couple screws and a screw gun and zip, 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 and next thing you know with some pieces of studs and standoffs, you got as much perching as you want. Um, I've seen people use them both ways. So that they're the one and a half piece, so they're like vertical, so the thin side is up. And the birds have no problem with that because our birds that can still fly well enough do get up on the rafters in the, in the coop and, and perch up there, and those are in that way. But all the ones that I put in purposefully, I put so that the, the flat side is up, the wide side is up, and it gives them more room, and they like it. They're not just sitting on there on their feet. They're plumping their little butts down on there, and they're happy as hell. Um, but generally speaking, the recommendation is 10 to 12 inches of perch per bird. At the highest level, if you have like a step-up perch system, especially as your birds mature and get older and get more wanting to perch, They'll want to perch as high as they can get. So if they're getting up in your rafters, you know, they're going to spread out up there. But you're going to find a lot of times your bigger breeds of birds and your birds that if you cut the wing tips on and clip their wings so they can't fly, clip one side, primary flight feathers only, uh, they can't get up there. So they're going to perch, you know, they're going to use whatever system you put in for them to be able to kind of hop a piece at a time up. But they are all going to want to be on the highest. So if you have plenty of perch space, 
but it's split between three levels, they're going to fight over the top. And if there's not enough room up there, they're going to fight over it a lot. And it leads to an unbalanced, unhappy flock. Now, the reason I say the recommendation isn't necessarily valid is you're going to find most of the time your birds are still going to all kind of hunch up in, in very tight, close proximity to each other. But you may find your birds breaking into sub-flocks, especially if you have multi-generational flocks. The birds that grew up together like to be together, and the birds that didn't grow up with that group, they like to be with the ones they grew up with. And you see it a lot of times even when you have you know generations that are only a month apart. So what will happen is you'll have a, a dense cluster here and a dense cluster here in this open space, but they still need the room to be able to do that. So I try to give them a, a foot a bird at the highest level. Now, people say, well, how does that work? Well, you can have half the damn coop with, 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 uh, with perches, and they can be you know, a foot apart for each perch. So you can fit a lot of perch space, and you do an L shape on one side and come out a foot and do it again, and, and they'll work that out amongst themselves. But you do, you, I think you, 10 inches is minimum. Um, so that when they start that clustering, they have room to separate their clusters. Um, and then if you're going to do a confined run, if they're going to spend most of their day in a coop and run environment, you need about 10 square feet of bird. So... If you have 10 birds, you need 100 square feet, which is a 10 by 10 run, uh, or however else you want to cut up that space. So you need to think about that, too. So when you're sizing your flock, it's not just how many eggs do I want, how much can I actually you know, house without really, you know, put, if you put too many birds in, even if they get along, you get into a lot more potential for disease and problems and un unhealthiness and things like that. Um I really, I don't have it in my notes, but I want to add at this point, one of the best investments you can make is a bucket of food-grade dimitaceous earth, and once a week or once every two weeks, get a flour sifter, throw some in there, and go in there and spread it out along the, the bed of, all, all in your bedding. It keeps the mites down. Uh, it helps suppress flies, too, because the flies are going to lay eggs in the chicken poop, And uh, they're going to get the DE on them, they're going to die. But the maggots also, if they get the DE on them, they're going to die. The chickens are going to dust in it. Some people put some DE that the birds can get direct access to. A lot of chicken feed has DE mixed in with it because it's good for the birds to eat. It's not a poison or a toxin at all. It kills insects by basically scratching into their exoskeleton and drying them out. Um, so adding DE to your, your regimen is probably a good idea. I don't like to put DE, if you're using a small run for a small flock, I don't like to coat the run stuff in DE because I want bugs to come in there because the chickens are going to eat them. So that's protein for them. But the coop, definitely, I really recommend that you use DE for your, your, your uh, coops. Maintenance on your coop, I mean, one of the best things you can do is get a big wire brush. The big square ones for grills are really great for cleaning the poop off of your, your uh Your what am I, what's the word? Your, your roosts, right? Because they poop all over those. So knocking that poop down with those, and I just keep one hanging out in the shed. That way, I don't forget which one I use for what, and use it like for cleaning my grill. Because once it's used for that, I don't want it nowhere near my grill. You know, I probably should put tape, colored tape on the handle or something, just to make sure it never gets confused. But that's the best tool I found. I used to use like a brush, like I'd use for knocking slag off of welding or something, like just a typical wire work brush. But the square, flat shape of a grill brush on a 2x4, one pass, it knocks everything off. And if you got a really nasty clump, that backside piece with the metal scraper, 
right off. Um, I would say about, I do deep litter in my runs, which means when it gets too pooped up, instead of cleaning it out, I get another hay bale or another straw bale and put it on top of it. And then when it gets too pooped, I do it again. About three times a year, I clean out my coop and I get all that material for compost. And when I do that, I'll get a bucket of about 50% bleach, not 50%, probably about a cup of bleach to a gallon of water. So I guess that's a tenth of 10% bleach. And I'll go in there with that same brush and I'll dip that brush and I'll brush down all of the, the, uh, the roosts at that point with the bleach mixture and that helps kind of kill off any buildup of bacteria. I probably should do that once a month, but being honest with you, I do it just about three to four times a year when I muck out the, the uh, deep litter. My chicken coops do not stink. They don't. With the deep litter model, they don't stink. There's plenty of carbon to hold that nitrogen, and it stays dry in there so it doesn't start composting until you take it out and add moisture to it. The nice thing is the stuff that I pull out of my chicken coops can pretty much be composted with nothing added to it. I'm not saying we do it that way, but you don't need a bunch of green grass clippings or whatever. If you pile it up and wet it down and put a tarp over it to keep it moist, it'll compost just like that. Um, what I usually do is pile it up and let the chickens tear it apart. I've been doing that long before I saw the mobile composting thing Jeff Lawton did. Uh, but we, we make a pile, they tear it apart. We pile it back up, they tear it apart. After a while of letting them tear it back open, we pile it up and, and tarp it and keep them away from it and let it cook off. Um, but, you know, there is this requirement for space and logistics to keep your chickens healthy. I want to talk about some layer breeds, and I'm going to talk about some, um, some, some meat chicken breeds as well. Not everything. I mean, this show's already over an hour long. It's late in the day today. So if you don't hear your breed of choice, don't get upset. I love all chickens. Uh, but these are birds I've worked with personally, and I have knowledge of, and I have an affinity for personally. Um, Rhode Island Reds are probably my, my favorite bird period um i i don't know what it is but i just love them they're they're considered a heavy breed and i actually kind of object to that term because they're really a small bird as far as i'm concerned a, a rhode island red hen is barely worth plucking and i'll talk a little bit about that in a bit with dual purpose and things like that but um They're little. They're small birds. Even a Rhode Island Red Rooster is just not that big of a bird. Very narrow breast profile and all. Um, and they're quite agile. They're a bird that you will probably find yourself having to clip wings if, if your fence isn't at least five foot tall. And even then, you might have to, have to clip one side wing. Um, but they just have a great personality. They really do. I've never seen a mean Rhode Island Red. I've seen one or two aggressive Rhode Island Red Roosters, and I think that more is a, a product of how uh, the rooster is managed and how the keeper understands or doesn't understand roosters. But Rhode Island Red Hens, I've always seen to be calm, gentle birds. Uh, they're never freakish, you know, like tweaky, freak-out birds. They're widely adaptable. I keep them in Texas. We used to have some of them in Pennsylvania. Uh, I know people in Montana keeping Rhode Island Reds in very cold climates. And as long as they have a place to shelter, they do well there. Uh, they lay very consistently. And though they're a small carcass, they do produce a pretty decent quality meat. They also produce a really nice looking little brown egg. And if you're selling eggs locally... 
you'll find that consumers generally want brown eggs. Now, if I cook you a white egg and a brown egg, I promise you, you ain't going to taste a bit of difference between it. And the quality of the chicken's life, the chicken's diet, and the chicken's quality of life, right? So the, the chicken is a happy chicken, and the chicken's getting a good diverse array, and it's getting some bugs and, and, and natural protein sources, and get a nice, dark, deep yellow yolk. Full-flavored egg is more important than the color of the shell. But I'll be honest with you, consumers like brown eggs. They just It's almost like I expect it to be brown. You know, because I'm buying this 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 homegrown egg. I don't know why, but that's just what people like. So that's got that going for it. As far as the heritage breeds of chickens <clears throat> that have been with us a long time, um, for overall productivity, they're maybe not the most productive, but they're at the top of the list. The next one is the white leghorn and crosses of the white leghorn. I'll talk about the crosses in a second. The white leghorn is the most tolerant of heat chicken, and they can still handle the cold pretty decent. But the white leghorn can handle heat that will just flat-out kill other chickens. Their advantage to me is they're very small, which makes them a terrible bird when it's time to cull them because there's almost nothing there. They're really little birds, uh, especially your hens, which, you know, when you're, when you're talking cull birds, unless you're talking cull birds from your own breeding, your, most of your culls are going to be hens at the end of their laying cycle. Um, but they don't eat much. They, they Because they're so light, they eat very little, and they lay large white eggs. And if your customers or you don't mind white eggs, and there's no reason you should, and the customer can be educated to this, the feed-to-egg ratio seems to be about one of the highest there is. The quality of the egg from a size standpoint is awesome. You, I feel bad for my white leghorn cross because when she's in there laying an egg, I mean, she's... And you look at the size of the egg and the size of that chicken's butt, and you're like, God, girl, I feel bad for you. But the production is really there. Now, I have a cross called a Tetra Tint. This is a Rhode Island red uh, cockerel bred to a, or rooster bred to a white leghorn hen. And you get a bird that's mostly white with this tawny little bit of, of this, like, it almost looks like dirt in her, in her feathers. And she is even, I'd say that you take a, a, a medium breed, this is what they consider a, a white leghorn, and a heavy breed uh, in a, uh, you know, a Rhode Island red, and you cross those, and the, the dadgone hen, the, the cross, she's even lighter and, and, and lighter than a, a white leghorn hen. And she lays, that bird lays, I'll bet you, in a 30-day month, that bird gives me 28 to 29 eggs. Every, and she's the only one I have that's laying right now that's of that type. She's the only white egg-laying chicken that lays a large egg I have. And there's dadgone big white egg in that, that coop every day, damn near. When there isn't one, it's like, wow, she didn't lay an egg today. It's, un, it's that unusual that you notice when it's not there. Um, just awesome. But the thing is, when a bird is life, really lightweight and all, that bird can fly. That bird can get over any fence she really wants to and also it's a consideration with these lighter breeds. Yes, you get productivity. Yes, you get a fast bird and a fast bird is less likely to be eaten by a predator. But she's flighty too. Not just that she will fly, but she just, she's a freak. You get near her, she runs away, she screams, she cackles at you. If she's laying an egg and she's on the nest and you want to push her out of the way to get the other bird's egg, she'll scream at you. She'll bite. It doesn't hurt, but she'll do it. Um... And if you do want to catch her, man, good luck. So a light bird has more escapability potential. 
right? So if that's important to you or if you don't want to deal with it, so I would not use white leghorn laying hens in a paddock shift model using movable electronet because I know damn well that once she figures out she's going to get zapped at most electronets only about four foot tall and that bird with a wing clipped will still fly right over that. Where if you get a buff Orpington, once her little fat butt fills out, she ain't getting over there. And most of your Rhode Islands aren't either. And if they are, a little wing clip and we'll take care of that. Um, our bird was getting out so much with just the and the way you clip a chicken's wings, you you hold out, you find the primary flight feathers. You should watch a video or get a picture if you're not sure what I mean yet. And you cut those primary flight feather wing tips off. And that means when that bird tries to fly, she starts to go to one side and she's destabilized. And pretty soon they get tired of being destabilized and stop flying. That's the theory. So we cut hers. We did this with our Egyptian Faomis too. And they still got out. And then my wife's like, well, what if you cut the feathers off the other wing? I'm like, well, that actually stabilizes them and they're more likely to get out even though they have left lift. They, 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 you know, you're not destabilizing them anymore. So we cut the secondary feathers, secondary flight feathers, which is the next group of them down on one side. So now she's got a stubby little wing on the right side. And you'll find if you're a right-handed person who wants to cut with right-handed scissors, that putting the bird's head towards your wrist and holding it with your, your, your palm up against your body, you pull out her right wing with your left hand. It'll be the easiest way for you. It'll be the easier wing for you to clip. So you'll probably always clip the right wing. So we clipped her right wing. And I said, the hell with it, man. So I took the primary flight feathers off her, her left wing, too. So now she's got just secondaries on just her left wing. Bird still gets out. I said, screw it. I cut. So she's got these two little stubs for wings. <laughs> I didn't actually cut her wings. You're cutting feather here, and you need to know where to cut the feather so you don't get into the part where you can actually make the bird bleed. And this bird got no wings at all and still get out. So it's a consideration. It's a consideration. And people say, well, why'd you cut the other side? You knew it wouldn't work. Well, I knew it wouldn't work, but I'd never seen it, and I, know, and I wanted to prove it to myself. And I'll tell you, it doesn't work. Um, so that's I love the bird for its durability in the heat, its feed-to-egg to production ratio, its reliability, its resistant to predators, and, and just frankly how, how self-sufficient it is. But it is it is a problem to keep now. Since the rest of the flock stays there, she's kind of gotten to where she stopped being a problem. She's chosen to stay put, as has her sister, the Egyptian Faomi. Egyptian Faomis, not recommended by me. Little bitty white egg, half the size of a normal chicken egg, I would say about. Um, everything I said about the white leghorn's true, except they scream at you for no reason, and they're ugly. Now, I've bred them to the Rhode Island Red. I'm going to see what the, the hybrids give me, because that might be interesting. Um, but I don't recommend them from my personal experience. Production reds or sex links. And I would say production reds, production browns, production blacks, production golds. These are your sex link chickens that are going to be some sort of a cross. And your red sex link chickens, you take a Rhode Island red rooster and you cross it with a Delaware chicken hen. And what you end up with is a baby chicken And if it's a male, it might have a little bit of color in it, but it pretty much looks like your classic Easter chick, right? It's it's just a little white, yellowy fuzzball. And if it's going to be, and if it's a hen, it'll be a brown color, it, it, like a reddish brown color will will come through. And that means when they're hatched, you can easily go male, female, male, female, male, female, male, female, 
right? So that's why the industry likes them, because they're so easy to sex. You're not looking for a little tiny thing up under the hood if you catch my drift. And there's varying different other crosses other than the red sex link and different birds that you cross to make them. The thing about them is they're very, very productive, very, very much a high-laying bird. I have several of those, and they are very productive. I'd say their eggs are a little bit larger than the Rhode Island red hens, and, and, and my production reds seem to lay an egg that's a little bit darker than my Rhode Island reds. And uh, I, I really think they're a great bird. My understanding, though, is if you're someone that keeps, and I, I haven't experienced this yet, they're molting right now, and we'll see how it works out, that if you're someone that keeps your birds past your first molt into your second molt, that they have a bigger drop-off in the number of eggs they lay than something like a pure Rhode Island red. So that they're a better producer for the first, you know, six months of age to 18 months of age, first year of laying. But they're not as high a producer in the second year of laying if you keep them that long. And that sometimes they're more likely to have misformed eggs in their second year of laying than the other heritage breeds. So it's just something to consider. Uh, and I will say that they are not much bigger body-wise than a Rhode Island Red a little bit. They're a little bit better as a meat bird at the end of their cycle. Black Australops. Um, I have some out on the ground right now. Uh, I'm, I'm really kind of impressed with them overall, even though they're not laying it just on, just on their mannerisms and their attitude. If you look back into the breeding of where they came from, they actually come from a black Orpington, and I, I like Orpington chickens, so they're a, a, a big, they've got some big, Big bird, big bone genetics in them. And the purpose of that that breeding was to develop a bird that would be just this is you know, this bird was developed long before we had these, you know, Cornish crosses and stuff like that. They, what they wanted what they wanted to do is they looked at the Orpington, the buffs and the black Orpingtons and uh, other Orpington birds. And and it was a really good choice for the farmstead, for the homestead, for the small producer as a bird because the Orpington was a pretty big bird. And you could that meant you could take your cockerels that were in surplus and you could run them as a meat bird. And you got a pretty good broiler chicken for the time out of the males. And some of those birds would be used on the farm and some of them would be sold to market when you were raising them as a meat bird, as a young bird. But your, your layers... When they went into that second molt or what have you, whenever you decided to cull them, and you, you had that chicken that was too old and too tough to sell, and you were going to use it as a farm bird, there's some meat there. But the Orpington is not the layer that the Rhode Island Red is or some of the other breeds are. It lays well, but not extremely well. If, if you looked at, if you said a, a Rhode Island Red gets a 10 out of 10 for production, an Orpington is going to get a 7.5 to an 8. Okay, just give you a feel. So what they were trying to do is find a bird that could increase the laying potential up to maybe a nine and a half, maybe not quite a ten, but a nine and a half, and not lose the size and the meat quality of the bird. And the Australorp is what they came up with. These were again bred in Austria, and um, they they pretty well hit that on the head. They're still to me when I look at them and I see you know when you look at a catalog. The average size of an adult cockerel and an adult or adult rooster and an adult hen is the same as an Orpington, but in reality, I don't see it. It, it just doesn't seem to play out that way to me. So, 
um, I think you quite don't get quite the size uh, of your Orpingtons. Uh, a big Orpington rooster is a sizable bird when it's time to call that out. And, you know, an Orpington is not... I'm going to go ahead and move on to buff Orpingtons. Um, and I have buff Orpington, but really all of the Orpingtons, everything I'm going to say applies, and I don't know why this is the case, though. It seems like the buffs are the ones that are just gentle birds compared to some of the other colors of them. I don't know I don't know if it's just my personal experience or what, but the buff Orpington's the bird that ends up sitting in your lap. It's the one that follows your kids around and doesn't do so like to chase them. Uh they're 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 like little pets. Uh they're just great birds and They are everything I just said. They're a bird that gives a good meat yield. It's a high-quality meat. The, 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 the meat of a buff Orpington chicken is, is something no one complains about. Um, and yet, they do put some size on. If you, have, if, you, if you have a whole flock of just Orpingtons and you're breeding them, and this year you end up with 20 new hens and 30 cockerels, and you say, I'm just going to treat those like broilers, and I'm going to raise them up, and when they're big enough, I'm going to slaughter them all, You're going to get a great meat yield. You will not get it fast. It will not be fast. It'll be 16, 18 weeks or more. Um, you will not get a high feed conversion ratio. They will eat a lot more than a Cornish Cross or another dedicated uh, meat bird. It won't be quite the plump breast of a Cornish Cross or a Delaware or something like that. But it'll be, it'll be fine. You won't complain, except maybe about the feed bill. Um. But if you want a dual-purpose bird, the Australorp and the Orpington are probably the two best bets. That's why I put them in today's notes. The next is what I call your own mutts. You have a, a flock, you crossbreed chickens, you don't know what you're going to get. Right now, I got one rooster I killed today. That's the, the white leghorn cross, which is the tetra tent, bred back to the Rhode Island red rooster. So now I got a 66% Rhode Island red, but the bird's still snow white. What color egg does it lay? I suspect white. I don't know because they haven't started laying yet the hens. They're a sex link, though. But you really have to look close when they're little tiny. The males, the 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 the, the everything that's not white is is dark gray to black. Uh, I'm sorry, the males is a is a brown, a tawny brown. And as they grow, the little bit of brown turns into like a. It looks just like the. The, the feathers on a Rhode Island red, a deep chestnut red brown. The females, it's gray, really light gray when they're chicks, and as they grow, it turns to almost a black. So that is these black spots on them, and it's it's five percent of their total color is this this black or this brown, whether they're male or female. But you could tell them apart at a very young age as chicks. Um, but they're small; they're just as small frame so far, and you know they're young yet. They're probably going to start laying in another two or three weeks, I would guess. But they're about the size of their mother now, and I don't see them getting much bigger. And the roosters are definitely not as big as a Rhode Island red rooster at the same time. Will the hybrid genetics result in a bigger bird long term? I don't know. If the, the brother of the one that died today doesn't turn psycho, we'll see. We'll see how big they get. But it's not going to be a good dual-purpose bird. But what I'm hoping to do is put a little more size on the bird, And calm down that freakish behavior of the of the, the white leghorn, and get a bird that, that that lays those big eggs very very productively. And what I may do now is take those and breed them again to a Rhode Island and push them even more into the Rhode Island genetics. How many times do you have to do that for the egg turns brown? I don't know. We'll find out. 
And, and that's an example. Is that going to go anywhere? I don't know. I don't know. What's going to happen when I breed a Rhode Island red hand to a, a buff Orpington? I don't know. But it's interesting to play with. And I would talk more about how you control who breeds with who and when, but we have a, a listener question for a call-in show we'll be doing Friday that's going to have that, so I'm going to kick it out. All right, let's talk about meat chickens. Um, I want to say this about meat chickens. If you're raising 50 meat chickens a year, you're probably going to spend as much to raise them as going and buy organic chicken in the store. It will be better than organic chicken from the store, though. It will cost close to that much unless you have really good pasture and or really good woods and pasture, civil pasture mixture, where there's a lot of stuff for them to get and you can put them into a paddock shift or very efficient chicken tractor or chicken tractor with electronet model. They're going to eat a lot of feed to grow. And the more you go toward what you would call conventional, the better you will do. If you go with a Heritage White or a Cornish Cross, which I'm going to talk about in a second, you're going to probably end up with a bird that's going to cost you a lot less to grow and be a lot more economically viable from a standpoint of actually saving money versus buying the bird than if you go with a Freedom Ranger or a Delaware or a Rainbow. You just are. So let's talk about these different breeds and, and, and the strengths and weaknesses of them. The, the go-to for raising meat chickens is a Cornish cross. And, you know, you, you can kind of see why if you, if you look at their potential. Um, no one raising them really for market harvests them this young, but they're actually probably big enough to make a nice little, like a Cornish game hen at four weeks, right? Um, they're generally harvested at eight to ten weeks of age. That means you can run a cycle of these things in two months. And if you're putting them out on pasture, there's some things you have to consider. But if you're, you think about this, if you're going to have a bird that you're going to be slaughtering in eight weeks and you have it in a brooder for three, you're only dealing with shifting it around on pasture for five weeks. Now, the problem with the Cornish cross to me is the following. First of all, it's terrible in the heat. So... You really have to pick your timing. Um, you, ca you can raise them through the summer, but you're going to have a lot of losses, and they're pretty miserable. I don't, I don't care if I'm going to kill a bird next month. I don't want it miserable today. I want my animals as happy as they can be. If you just watch them walk around, by the time they're about four weeks old, and from that point on it just gets worse, they drag their asses, they just really aren't interested in doing a lot, they pretty much want to sit and eat and grow. And that's what they're designed to do. Um, their fast growth rates, if you put them on too much protein and you push it too much, sometimes they just, their legs just break. Like, like, like an old person when you, they say they broke their hip when they fell and they didn't, their hip broke and then they fell, like that. In fact, a lot of times when you buy commercial chicken, you find a broken leg, that chicken had that leg broken several days before it was harvested. It wasn't broken during the butchering process. Just a little FYI there, you know. What I'm talking about, you see that leg that's broken right in the, the big part of the bone in the middle? A lot of times that's what that is. That's that bird just outweighed its skeleton. Um, the bird was never meant for pasture pasturing and chicken tractoring. It's not what it's, it's meant to do. It's meant to sit in a cage for eight weeks and have its head cut off. That's what that bird's meant to do. People do pasture them, and if you time it right, where you have optimum temperatures... You give it lots of shade, water, and feed. It will get some of its nurture, nutrient from the ground. And the good news is if you're doing the electronet thing, it ain't flying out. These birds aren't going 
anywhere. Ben Falk actually likes them. He ran Cornish crosses one year with Electronet and kept them with his sheep. And the next year he ran Kosher Kings, which are a bird from the Amish. And you can buy the cockerels for cheap. I think it's less than a dollar a chick because they use them as, a, as an egg layer. And they sell off the cockerels for next to nothing. They won't sell you the hens. It's like their personal bird, the Amish bird for, for their eggs. Um, and he said after that, even though he thought that the kosher kings made a wonderful bird, a wonderful meat carcass, big, heavy bird, that the Cornish was less, ate less because it grew faster and never got out. And he, he was constantly, especially as you got in the last couple weeks with the uh, kosher kings, you know, having to catch them and put them back in because they were escaping more. So the Cornish cross works, especially in cooler climates. Or if you were doing them in Texas, let's say you, you put them in the brooder after, you know, the first week of February. So the end of February, they're coming out of the brooder, and they're out for March and one week of April. They're probably going to do just fine. But you're going to deal with broken legs, and you're going to deal with a bird that really isn't happy to be alive. And the, the upside of it is that when it's time to kill it, you won't feel bad. Because the bird's going to look at you and be like, kill me. The downside is you got to, like, that week of eight to, eight to ten week window, you got to kill that bird. That bird is not, it looks like some kind of science experiment gone wrong if you wait too long. And they'll start dropping over and dying on you. So that's, you know, but if you want the fastest growing, biggest, and, and good tasting bird, it's Cornish Cross. Now, Darby Simpson's solution to this, to try to raise a, bird, raise a bird that does a little bit better on pasture and still has many of the good attributes, is the Heritage White. And this comes from the White Plymouth Rock strain. And it has a, a little bit sturdier frame and a better balanced body. And it makes a great big, uh, great meat bird. And you can still get a, you know, a harvest out of it in 8 to 10 weeks. And there's a lot of value to that as well. Uh, generally, optimum nine weeks is, is what's recommended industry-wise for this bird. So it's a great bird. Now, I've seen them on pasture, and to tell you the truth, they don't look much different to me than uh, a Cornish cross. They just seem to do better. They're still awkward-looking. Um, they don't look like a normal chicken. They waddle. They sit down a lot after about the fourth or fifth week. Um, but they do a little, they, they scratch a little better. They deal with the heat a little better. And I would probably go with them over Cornish Cross as a homestead bird. You, 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 they cost a little more for the chicks though. So it's another thing you got to look at. Uh, next up on my list of meat bird breeds is the Red Freedom Ranger chicken. I think they're a wonderful homestead chicken. They will cost you to produce um, a a full fully raised you know chicken that you're ready to harvest. Definitely more money per pound. I, I saw someone who did a cost analysis, um, you know, raising a, a reasonable amount of chickens, forty forty ish birds. And when they raised the Cornish cross, and this is not a highly optimized farm operation. This is a homesteader. It cost them about $1.47 per pound of meat to raise Cornish crosses. And on rangers, it cost $1.73. So it's a little bit more. It's not going to break the bank, though. I mean, really, I mean, this guy raised uh, 40 Cornishes uh, for $346, bucks, and he raised... Uh, 
Uh, what did he raise? He raised, I'm looking here at his thing right now, 46 Rangers for $447. So uh, it was about 100 bucks more almost to the dollar, but he raised six more birds. Again, $1.47 versus $1.73. If I'm sitting in the grocery store and I'm picking between two things in packages and I think that the quality of the one at $1.73 a pound is, worth, is better, I'm going to buy it. But let's let's talk about that. Um, his let's talk about his days to harvest. This is an actually tracked thing here. Um, he had 53 days to processing his Cornish crosses, 67 on his Rangers. I would say that 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 that's probably pretty accurate. I put your Red Ranger at about uh, 9.5 weeks, and I'll tell you, I don't think that's long enough. I harvested mine, or the bulk of mine, at 10 weeks, and they would have been better at 12, but that's two more weeks of feeding them. And I think if if this person had done that, um, he would have ended up with more meat uh, uh, per, you know, per bird and might have had a little bit better uh, results. Now, let's talk about mortality and the difference. Now, he was pasturing them. He had 20% of his Cornish crosses die and only 8% of his Freedom Rangers die. And I, based on my experience, I would say that is pretty accurate too. The, the problem that I have with the Red Ranger chicken, the meat's tougher. There's just no doubt about it. The, the breast meat is wonderful, but it's not as plump. You get a lot less breast meat uh, relative to the whole bird. Even when you, I raised some, we took out to like 18 weeks, and these birds dressed at nine pounds plus. Big birds, small turkey size. When you take the breast cut, let off them, you're like, I can't believe that huge bird. This is all the rest, but it's very, very good. The dark meat, the leg and the thigh, is very dark. Like dark meat, duck dark. It is chewy. To a degree, unless it's prepared, you got to prepare it a little bit differently. It doesn't make a great roaster chicken. They're huge. The legs on these birds are massive. The thighs are massive. And they have large blood vessels. And I took a whole one, I put it in a crock pot for three and a half hours. It fell apart, it tasted very good. But when you took apart the, the, the thighs and the legs, it looked almost raw because it was bright red in some areas. That wasn't raw. There's nothing wrong with it. But I don't think it makes a good bird for the consumer. I always was encouraging pastured poultry producers to run trials with these things and see if people would want them. And I mean, the French cook them and the French love them. There's a whole industry built around this, this bird there. But I think the American consumer, unless you're parting your birds out and you're cooking them, you know, for a roaster chicken, that when they cut it open, it has that that look to it. It's going to turn them off, and that's the biggest weakness I think they have. Probably the best chicken for the homesteader who doesn't want the wobbly nature of the Cornish cross or Heritage white, and doesn't want the big giant rubbery somewhat texture of the thighs and legs of the Freedom Ranger is probably the Delaware chicken. Now, to really get their potential, you're going to have to run them for 16 weeks. Um, the good news is they're a good dual-purpose bird. They, If you want to keep them in your flock, you can keep them in your flock. And this, They, at one time, were the industry standard for broiler chickens. Until the Cornish Cross came along, and you went from taking 14 to 16 weeks to finish a bird uh, to being able to do it in eight weeks. 
and then producers just went, well, duh. You know, that's that's how that happened. When they when that, that breed was first really made uh, into what it is today, it was the meat chicken. And it's probably the best dual-purpose chicken, especially, again, if you're going to be hatching your own birds and then, you know, maybe separating them out and, and taking the cockerels and using them as a meat bird, uh, they're hard to beat. They will grow faster and larger than your Orpingtons or your Australorps. Um, and they will make a decent broiler chicken for the homesteader. It's hard to pick them over the Cornish or the Heritage White from a standpoint of total productivity, though. They just take longer. And if you let them hang around till they're like 22 weeks old, you'll have a great big cockerel bird, and it'll be a good-looking piece of meat, but it will start to toughen up. Much past uh, 16 weeks, you've really gone too far with them. So they're an option. And they're a good option as a dual-purpose bird. Let's talk about protein requirements really, really quick here, because this is all information you can get for yourself if you want to. Um, but layers, uh, when you have them on, you know, when you're starting them out as baby chicks, you're looking at uh, about a 20% protein is what you want for them. Broilers, 20 to 22% protein, depending on what you're growing and how you're growing it and where you're growing it. Um, but understand this, that as birds grow... Protein grows muscle and bone. Carbohydrate produces fat and energy. Okay, and and, and fat produces fat and energy. Um, fat really is really more neutral. It's more of an energy feed than anything else. But carbohydrate is sugar. Sugar is an energy feed. Protein is a growing feed. So you want them on a higher protein feed as they're they're younger. Once they get past that starter stage. You're, you're looking at moving them to a grower formula. And with layers, your feeds will range from 16 to 18%. And we'll have, the big thing is there'll be no calcium supplementation. I have a hard time believing that unless you're really piling calcium into a young chicken, you're going to hurt it. But as the story goes, as they would say, that young chickens fed calcium. And your starter, by the way, runs for about three weeks. And then you move them on to grower. And if you if you were to feed a, a, a laying formula to a, a chicken that's in the growth stage, you can cause kidney stones and reduce their overall laying potential through their life of the chicken. So you shouldn't put them on to a laying formula when they're in the still in the growth stage until they hit about 18 weeks. At 18 weeks, you move your laying hens onto a laying formula, which is still a 16 to 18 percent protein, just like the grower, but now it's supplemented with calcium. That's the big difference. It helps them produce eggs. And I think that's great, and I think there's a big case to be made, though, for taking your eggs that you use for personal use, crumbling them up, and feeding the shells back to your chickens, and recycling the calcium that way. Uh, they seem to like it. I'll just put it to you that way, and that, and that helps. But having some calcium supplementation and some oyster shell and things like that is a great idea for your laying hens. You're asking that bird to create a shell with high calcium every day of its life. That's like growing a bone every day of your life, a new bone. Think about that. And think about how much eggshell there is to one egg compared to the size of a chicken. Right? It, it's pretty significant. So that calcium sub substitute is important. Um, broiler starter, again, 20 to 22%. Um, broiler growing formula, you'll usually find an 18 to 20%. And you got to be careful, though. Darby says you can put some of these birds on 20% feed, you really up your mortality. You're better off backing off a little bit. And if it takes a, little, a couple more days, you're better off. 
because you already are dealing with a bird with some of these breeds that are just growing way too fast to keep up with itself. Um, I've seen birds on high protein, 20, 22% formula that do make their eight months, they look, or eight weeks, they look miserable. And when you, when you cut them open, they pretty much have congestive heart failure. The, the pericardium is just full of what looks like mucus. So I think there's something to be said there. And backing down to an 18% uh, growing formula is not a bad idea. Then there's something in the broiler world called finisher. And some finisher is 18%. You might as well not do it. There's a lot of finishers out there. They back down to 15%. What does that mean? It means more carbohydrate. When you take the protein down, the carbohydrate comes up. I've seen finishers down to 14%. This is like your last week. Or maybe you take a bird you could harvest, especially your birds that are not the freak mutant Cornish crosses, like a Delaware or something, uh, and you take and you do it one extra week on finisher. And maybe during that time, you supplement some things with a little bit more carbohydrate as well. Get them onto some fat supplementation, maybe some uh, black soldier fly larvae or mealworms and stuff like that. You increase the fat. And that's the, con that's, that's the concept behind putting birds on finisher for like the last week or two, is to increase the fat content. And, and those, are, those are your pretty basic things. And the thing is, is there's so much chicken feed out there That the formulas, if you're buying starter, are formulated right. The grower is formulated right. The laying is formulated right. So you can just, you know, give them whatever out of the... I'm going to go through the different choices you have, you know, whether it's commercial, generic, or it's organic or non-GMO. If you give them the right stuff, they're probably going to be fine in general. Um, you get into farming, you should probably get some consulting if you've never done it before with the exact breed and exact formulation and things like that. Um, the feed options that are available, when I say commercial in my notes, I mean generic. I mean Purina, Lairina feed. I mean Do More from Tractor Supply. I mean this, the, the, the lowest end feed you can get. The advantage is it's cheap. I mean, that's a big advantage. It cuts your cost to, to very, very little. Um, The disadvantage to me is primarily that it's got GMO in it. And if you're going through all this crap to produce meat or eggs outside of the commercial system, one of your primary motivators, at least for me, is to not have GMO in there. Um, so the, the big advantage is it's cheap. It's also, your birds aren't going to get sick and die on it. Um, I fed birds that before I could, when I, before I could find what I wanted, <clears throat> I used do more feed. My birds did just fine. They produced pretty damn good eggs. I don't want to put them back onto it. I don't want to feed my birds GMOs, period. But if I was out of everything else and it was available and nothing else was and I needed feed for my birds and they were on it for a week or two, I wouldn't cry and shudder and fall into a, a blothering blob and think I'm going to die or my birds are going to get sick. But I, I really don't want my birds on GMO. I think the long-term use of GMO foods provides large exposure to glyphosate i.e. Roundup, because they get the protein from soy meal, and all the soy is just bathed in this crap, and it does major internal organ damage. I've opened up birds that everything else was pretty much the same, and one was fed GMO food and one wasn't, and you can look at the internal organs, and you can look at the condition of the lungs and the liver, and again, the pericardium around the heart, and you can just see the difference. And if you can see it, then it's real. So I don't like to give them GMO. Kind of the best you can do if you're buying feed is an organic feed. 
I mean, that's kind of the top. There's also what's called like organic transitional. That's what Darby uses. And that's if you can find a farm or you can find a grain mill that's buying from farms that are transitioning to organic, it takes them four years to go from conventional to organic and be able to sell under the organic label. So it's not organic, but it's GMO-free, it's pesticide-free, etc. And it sells kind of a split. It's not as expensive as organic, not as cheap as the generic. And you can buy that. And that's a great alternative. And then there's just a non-GMO feed. Pretty much it's conventional feed with no GMO. So either using non-GMO soy, or and that's very rare, or they're using something else to get the primary protein, like milled cowpea or, or, or peanut meal. Now here's what the people that defend their choice to use GMO say. You know what? There's still a lot of insecticides and stuff used on peanuts and cowpea and all this other stuff. Yes, there is. And all of that shit is used on the GMO feed too, plus the GMO, plus the herbicide. So if I have a choice and I can't get organic, I can't find organic, or I can't buy organic, and I can either go conventional or non-GMO, I'm going to go non-GMO because at least I'm not going to be I'm not going to be feeding my birds herbicides because you can't put the herbicide on it because you would kill it. So that's my justification to go to non-GMO. It doesn't cost as much as organic. It's more available, and I think you'll see more and more of it available, though I prefer to go fully organic. Another thing you can look at is grocery waste. My wife's out right now on her rounds for the day, and she's talking to several different produce managers. Is there any way we can get leftover grocery waste for our chickens and for composting? This is not going to provide very much protein at all, but it gives them a lot of vegetative matter. And it is a valuable way to supplement your bird's eating requirements. It just is, especially when you have poor quality pasture like we're dealing with now. And it's going to take us years to make this poor quality into high quality. It just is because of the environment that we're in. The heat, the lack of rainfall here, alkaline shallow soils with a limestone base only a few inches underneath the topsoil. It's just going to take time. So that's a great way to bring more greenery in. Now, will that... You know, is that going to be all organic? Well, only if you're, you know, buying from or you're getting your waste from an organic grocery store. But again, would you rather have some pesticides and as much free range as you can get, or a bunch of GMO, Purina level, moldy chicken food crap? So it's it's you know, there's no nirvana here. There's dealing with what you have. So I, I'm a proponent of you know, like leftover lettuces and things like that. Um, brewers and distillers grain. You're either dealing with barley or rye or wheat most of the time. There is no GMO barley, rye, or wheat. Is there probably some pesticide residues in there? Yes. But you're, at least you're not GMO. Now, the thing about brewer's yeast or distiller's yeast, it's undergone the mashing process. The mashing process extracts the sugars. That's so they can be fermented to make you know either uh, a base that will then be distilled into liquor, like a whiskey, or to make a beer, which means the sugar's been largely extracted, leaving behind more protein. So brewer's yeast, or not brewer's yeast, brewer's grain, is actually very high in protein relative to carbohydrate. It's high fiber, high protein. So it's a little bit bulky, and you can't rely on it alone, but the bird's going to get fiber and protein and very low carbohydrate. So it's actually better feed. You're better off feeding a brewer's uh, uh, grain to a chicken, then the grain before it's it's mashed, so it's actually got a higher protein ratio. 
So it's a better quality feed after the brewer's done it. Plus, it's been through a mashing process, which is basically like a low-temperature cooking. So it's very easy for the bird to digest, and they love it. Um, so brewers, if you can find brewers or distillers grain, that the, the issue usually is you have to have a flock large enough to use what you're going to be able to get if you're going to be getting it consistently. I need to contact uh, Les out there. Les, get in touch with me. Uh, you were getting me some of this stuff for a while, and I couldn't use it. Now that my birds are grown, I could probably use a barrel that size a week, and maybe we can work something out uh, where you're not doing I don't want you doing it for me for free or whatever, but that would be great. Fodder. Uh, I feed my birds barley fodder. Right now they're not on it because there's a lot of greenery and it's, it's, it's summertime. But fodder's where you take something like barley and you sprout it. I sprout mine in five-gallon buckets. Birds love it. It makes uh, a barley, which is an okay feed for a chicken, into a superfood. It's not high protein. It is incredibly high nutrient value for the birds. It's like a, like a superfood shot every day. Your kitchen waste. Anything that we have left over that we would eat that's not citrus and it's not onion, goes to the chickens. And they go crazy over it. And it, it's it's a good way to reprocess your waste. Pasturing, which is getting them out on the ground, or you know, if you're free-ranging, um, it's, it's going to be a mixed bag. What do you have? But it's a great way to cut the feed bill. And then the last is insects. And I don't mean the insects they catch for themselves. I mean things like black soldier fly larvae and mealworm larvae. Dorothy's plan with farming mealworms right now, so far... I think we would lose money feeding mealworms to our birds anything other than as a treat. Um, your oatmeal and carrots, Bill, could have bought quite a bit of chicken feed so far. We'll see, though, as that works out. But those are the, the, the different ways that you, you, know, you have to feed your birds. And, and I really encourage you to start asking your feed stores, your feed mills, whatever, for non-GMO feed. And if they say we have organic, well, that's great. But can you look into non-GMO and see if maybe there's a cost savings there? And, and this is why. I don't think it's perfect, but I think it's better. And I think if more people ask for it, more of it will be available. So, so please consider at least asking for it. I want to finish up with the final thoughts on this. I, 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 this is the, wor the words of the great Nike, just do it. I think that so many people worry, well, is it this chicken or that chicken, and do I do this or that? As long as you can contain the bird in a way that's not cruel to the bird, that doesn't cause the bird immense chicken trauma, and if the bird's in a coop and run, it's not going to be in chicken trauma. It's going to be fine. Think of how many people keep a parrot in a cage. And the parrots live for 80 years and they're happy, and the guy's dead and his parrot's still alive living with somebody else, Okay. As long as the bird can be help, kept in a healthy, responsible way, and it gets food and water and can thermoregulate, it's going to work itself out. And there's a lot of stuff that you're not going to figure out until you're forced to figure it out by participating in it. But people have kept chickens for thousands of years, and you can too. If you have any questions to follow up on this one, I might do a chicken Q&A show, so send that question to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. And instead of the normal formula, do chicken question for Jack if it's for a follow-up show. And I'll do what I can to answer your follow-up questions on chickens. Uh, I know this went way longer than I anticipated, but this is an unusual day with a lot of stuff going on. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it answered many of your questions about uh, raising chickens. And I hope it gives you some ideas about how you can make raising chickens part of your sustainable lifestyle. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our team.
there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Show you.